The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you every week, I also write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes an excellent newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen uh, is not taking new subscribers right now, but he will be doing so at the beginning of the next quarter. If you are interested in signing up for his newsletter, you need to uh, go to miningstocks.com. That's M-I-N-I-N-G stocks.com. Or you can also do that by calling my assistant in New York during regular work days. Uh, That's Claudio Bassi at 718-457-1426. 1426. I'd also like to remind you that probably the best place to go to follow uh, everything that I do, including accessing this uh, radio show, is Jay Taylor Media, J A Y Taylor Media.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle Jay Taylor Media. We do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And we'd like to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. They are Timmins Gold, Bravada Gold Corp, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold Corp, and Uranium Energy Corp. Well, I should just uh, give you a little bit of an update on, on some of the companies. Uh, Timmins Gold is selling at $2.38. This is a company that's doing extremely well, uh, growing its earnings uh, and its uh, gold production. Bravada Gold, um, well, that is a company that's really been struggling, no question about it. Uh, I did meet with the management of Bravada earlier today here in Vancouver, uh, and I am very encouraged by their prospects, not, albeit the share price is at two and a half, actually 2.7 cents this morning. I did personally pick up a few shares of this stock this morning at 2.7 cents. Uh, the company has several good prospects uh, in Nevada, Wind Mountain being the, uh, the, uh, the lead project. Uh, and uh, after reviewing all the company has going for it, I believe it, uh, it offers great upside potential from these levels. 
for reasons that I will be talking about more, of course, in my newsletter, because it is a recommendation in my newsletter, as is Timmons Gold. Also, uh, Miranda Gold uh, is up a bit today at 18.5 cents. Uh, some excellent projects, uh, prospects going on, I think, primarily, uh, mostly, I would say, uh, most exciting of which are probably in Colombia right now. I did meet up with that management team here briefly in uh, in Vancouver as well. Paramount Gold and Silver, this is a company between two projects that has just under 10 million gold equivalent ounces, a sleeper project in Nevada and also a project in Mexico selling at $1.43. Sand Gold is up uh, big percentage terms today, and I don't know of any news to account for it, but it's up some 36% today at 22.5 cents. I have uh, purchased Sand Gold uh, in my account and have it as a uh, in my newsletter as well as a turnaround situation. I believe that's a company that can still do exceedingly well, be it uh, the fact that it has had to issue a lot of shares uh, with a lower share price, but I think from these current levels looks very attractive to me. And Uranium Energy Corporation, uh, the most recent new producer of uh, of uranium uh, in the United States, uh, selling at two dollars and nine cents, eighty five and a half million shares. Uh, that's a company held, headed by Amir Adnani, who will be with us today uh, in just a few minutes to talk about the sister company, um, Brazil Resources. Uh, but Uranium Energy is a sponsor of this company uh, to this show, and I believe it's a company that has. Great upside potential as it's growing its uranium production upwards to a million pounds a year in Texas. Um, well, I'm talking to you from Vancouver today, where I'm just uh, just finished attending uh, and spoke at the Cambridge House World Resource Investment Conference. Uh, and as a contrary indicator, I can tell you, I think we are looking at some uh, really great opportunities right now uh, in the junior resource space. And Charles Nanner. Uh, is continuing to say that he believes that mid-June is a turnaround period for gold and silver, and he's turned a bit more optimistic on silver, suggesting people start taking a small position in the SLV, that's the silver ETF. Uh, And I might remind you also of a conversation I had a couple weeks back with Ted Butler. Ted is absolutely, uh, he says this is, he's more bullish than he's been in 30 years for silver, given the position of J.P. Morgan and other bullion banks. And Ted just says, you know, if you really follow what they are doing, you can do very well in trading in and out of the gold and silver. And they have had, now are at the the smallest short positions that he can remember in a long time. So he's turned very bullish as well. But my focus here in Vancouver in the last couple of days has certainly been more on uh, in the resource sector among the mining companies, and I see a lot of great opportunities, Golden, uh, Golden Arrow. Uh, we did meet with Joe Grasso, the, the president of that company, a couple of days back here in Vancouver, and things are looking extremely good for that company. They already have some 110 million uh, silver equivalent share, uh, ounces that they have outlined uh, in their project uh, in, uh, in Argentina, and that one is looking very, very strong. I think it has a chance to to increase that number by several fold, very possibly. Uh, also, as I mentioned, we met with Bravada Gold from its current levels, I think looks very promising. Uh, and there's a platinum group uh, metals company that I'm going to be talking about to my subscribers this coming weekend. 
it looks to me like better, like it's a better project than anything that South Africa has had going for it in the last number of years. Uh, better than Robert Friedland's Ivan Platz. Even uh, I can't reveal the name of it, obviously, because I need to tell my paid subscribers first. But uh, if you'd like to know more about this uh, about this story, uh, you can go to miningstocks.com, sign up for my newsletter, or call Claudio Bossi at seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six to sign up for J Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Well, we've titled our episode today, Gold Market Manipulation. Well, you can bank on it. Ed Griffin, Chris Powell, Amir Adnani of Uranium Energy, as I said, will be with us. Actually, uh, Amir also with Brazil Resources, and we're going to talk to him about that. But the recent plunge in the gold price at the time that Bernanke has opened the door for unlimited quantitative easing has some gold bugs really wondering and accusing market maker, the uh, manipulation in the market of, of some of those bullion banks that we just talked about. Are the gold bugs onto something or just blaming someone other than themselves for their losses? Well, in today's show, Chris Powell uh, provides a smoking gun evidence, I believe, in support of paranoid gold bugs. And Ed Griffin explains the motives for rigging the gold price, um, as I think very much akin to what Alan Greenspan explained in his 1966 article called "Golden Economic Freedom" that he published, that was published in Ayn Rand's newsletter. Uh, if gold is not rigged, as the defenders of totalitarian economics like Jeff Christian and John Nadler insist, one wonders why those same people think gold is the only market that is not, or should not be rigged. And ultimately, though. Markets prevail, which is why I am so bullish on gold and uranium. That's why I think that uh, we are going to see gold and silver shares do extremely well in the next number of years. Uh, and I think that we are very near, if not already uh, near a bottom. Of course, um, th- that um, uh, is uh, good news for those that have managed to uh, set aside some cash. I think uh, those that have some purchasing power now, right now are in an enviable position to buy some extremely good value, and I will be talking about that on this show, of course, in the coming weeks, as well as in my newsletter uh, also. Well, we're going to have the opportunity to talk to Amir Adnani as soon as we come back from commercial break. Amir, uh, with Brazil Resources, has, uh, has put together a great management team, a great board of directors, and some great properties in Brazil and one in Paraguay now as well. So, uh, stick around, and uh, Amira Nani will, will be with us right after the break, and we're going to learn to know something about more about his company. We already has a nice gold resource, uh, and I think a lot more to come. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Amira Nani. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Colombia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. 
Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Amir Adnani. He's the CEO, uh, President and CEO of Brazil Resources. He's also, as we've noted, uh, heads up Uranium Energy Corp. He's done a remarkably great job uh, with that company, bringing it into production, the first new uranium producer in quite a while in the United States. And so, But today we really want to talk to him more about Brazil Resources. It trades in Toronto under the symbol BRI, and you can buy it, as I have, down in the States under the symbol BRIZF. Uh, I believe it's selling at around 80 or 90, 80, 90 cents or so, uh, 41 and a half, uh, 41.3 million shares outstanding, gives it a market cap of around $36 million. Welcome, Amir, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. Really good to have you again. Uh, you, you know, Brazil resources, let's just tell our listeners, those that might not be familiar with this story, why Brazil? You know, why Brazil is really, I think, a question about uh, the geopolitical risk that is so pronounced these days in mining industry and exploration and, you know, how it is. I mean, you could have the best rocks and the best management team, but geopolitical risk can basically wipe all of that value away. So, we find that really Brazil today is uh, benefiting from a combination of positive factors. One of being really the most, one of the most stable uh, emerging economies uh, with a true democratic system out there in the world, uh, having a very diversified economy, but also having a very clear understanding and having an established mining industry and mining law has translated to really seeing record levels of capital flow into the country for not just very, you know, various sectors, but particularly in the mining industry, we're seeing some of the highest levels of M&A activity, especially from uh, state-owned enterprises out of China coming towards Brazilian companies and projects. And so I think for all these reasons, um, 
uh, you know, this is a country that's in the spotlight right now and is one of the top mining jurisdictions to be involved with. Uh, the other thing is you also have the fact that it's a fairly large country. So there are mm-hmm. still many of the interesting mineral belts in Brazil that are underexplored. And so you still have that excitement and, and the possibility of value creation through systematic exploration available, coupled with uh, uh, the, the stable politics and the positive investment attention that the country is receiving. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, of interesting belts, the Groupie, I think it's the Groupie Gold Belt, is where your flagship property, the Kashahara, is located, right? Correct. And this, you know, speaking of sort of underexplored belts, I mean, this is a very interesting area in northeastern Brazil where when we look back in geologic time and this part of South America was really, when you look at South America and Africa, they were really connected as one continent. Mm -hmm. The thesis here is that when we look at geology and the prolific gold belts in West Africa, that same type of geology and gold endowment should be and is available uh, in northeastern Brazil. And this kind of thesis has led to exploration by Canadian companies uh, over the last 10 or 15 years from the likes of Kinross and TVX Gold, uh, El Dorado, etc., to some emerging new gold developers, producers who are now active in the Gurupi Gold Belt. But we're still really just uh, scratching at the surface of this potential because when you look at West Africa, somewhere over 50 million ounces of gold has been developed and produced uh, right now, uh, we're not nearly anywhere near that kind of defined potential or defined resource in the Gurupi Gold Belt in northeastern Brazil. But companies like ours and other new gold producers in that area are actually making some very good progress. This is probably one of the busier uh, gold belts in Brazil right now. And we've got ourselves some very good real estate. You know, the Cachoeira project has a, already a defined 43-101 resource of approximately 1.4 million ounces and uh, measured, indicated, and inferred categories with very good grades, uh, Jay, ranging anywhere from 1.3 to 1.4 gram per ton, but also still a lot of exploration upside. Uh, in addition to the Cachoeira project, we have three other licenses in the Gurupi Gold Belt south of Cachoeira, namely the Monteseros property, where, again, you've got these very interesting signatures, the signatures being the fact that for over a hundred years there has been artisanal mining activity. So guys that are just, you know, with very basic mining techniques are mining the high-grade visible gold veins at surface. And, um, and it, this really becomes your best exploration tool. And these are the targets that companies like ours are drilling down to, say, 100 meters from surface. And surely uh, we're finding a lot of gold. Mm-hmm. What is um, so? You've got three prospects then in that uh, in that Gurupi Gold Belt, I guess, right? Correct. And then, how much? Uh, how much? You've, as you mentioned, you got about 1.4 million ounces. What do you think your upside is? And can you give us some sense of what the target is on the Kashahara? I mean, do you have you got a drill program going forward? Uh, and what would be the extent of it if if that's the case? Well, we came out with this new 43-101 resource recently, and the company that uh, developed that report is Tetratech, which is you know, a major engineering consulting firm. And so based on that report, there's now basically some recommendations that Tetratech has made, which suggests that we could see um, uh, almost a doubling of the resource share. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about some really good upside and potential. And so this recommended drill program is not something that we have started yet, but this is something that we're definitely 
getting there to uh, 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 to basically get going with. And uh, you know, and that's that's pretty exciting uh, kind of upside to have on on the back of an existing defined resource. So you know, you've got a good sort of starting base with the resource. You've got some real defined uh, uh, potential on extensions that could be uh, followed up on with drilling. And, you know, Brazil Resources is still in a good position with uh, uh, having cash position of over $4 million and having a, a good uh, shareholder base that has really supported the company well up to now. Uh, so the ability to either, you know, drill the existing program with funds on hand and be able to raise additional funds uh, on the back of more news and increasing of the value of the property these are all viable things for BRI to do based on our really demonstrated ability to raise money and having some very supportive shareholders. No doubt about it. We've got a, a, a nice resource, and I, I believe this is an open pit target that you're talking about at Cashier, right? Correct. At 1.3 to 1.4 grams per ton is a, is a nice grade these days. A lot of projects running at half those grades are making money in many cases. So that, that is very encouraging. And um, you, you mentioned, um, you know, I think it might be a good time, Amir, just to mention your board of directors. I think you have a very strong board and you have a very strong management team. Maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about, about the people that you've surrounded yourself with. Well, when you when you look at sort of our our team, I think you see a board and a and a team that really kind of combines not just uh, exploration and mining experience, but also a very strong understanding of Brazil and entrepreneurial experience. One of our board members and really one of the founders of the company is a gentleman by the name of Mario Garnero, who's probably one of the you know, best known Brazilian businessmen and entrepreneurs. Um, having a track record spanning uh, almost you know 40 years, and he's the chairman and founder of one of the oldest banks in Brazil called uh, Brazil Invest, which is based in Sao Paulo, and they um, they really have a diversified portfolio of holdings within their uh, uh, on their side. And Brazil Resources is the only resource mining company that uh, Brazil Invest is involved with, which I think is a huge vote of confidence for us and. Mario, as a board member, also gives us that local uh, credibility and that local presence that uh, you really need when you're where you're in a country. And if you can have an ally like that, establishes you uh, with that right amount of local sponsorship. And our technical team, I mean, you look at the president and CEO of the company, Steve Swatson, who was uh, formerly the global head of exploration and development for BHP Billiton. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are people with... Uh, uh, some very kind of blue chip pedigree and background, and uh, that's um, that's definitely I think um, uh, something that we've benefited from in, able to, in, in order to be able to acquire, identify and acquire the right properties, and also attract uh, some very supportive shareholders because they really see the quality uh, of the board and the fact that uh, there's the right combination of skill set and experience and network that. Uh, people like Steve and Mario bring to the table. Some of our advisory board people, you, you know, for example, Enzio Gurifi, who was former exploration head for Kinross in Brazil. Uh, Paulo Pereira, who's our country manager, who's been with uh, a number of majors uh, throughout a 35-year career. Um, this, uh, this is really sort of a team that not only has the, the right resume, Jade, they also have the skin in the game. You know, collectively management 
owns about 35% of the company. That's, you know, that's serious vested interest. Well, that's very and, important. Um, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, I'm glad you uh, made note of that because uh, I think that's one of the most important issues for investors. If you want to know that the interest of management is aligned with the, uh, with the shareholders, that's a very, very important point. Uh, let me ask you, Amir, we've got maybe three minutes left here yet, but I want to ask about a couple of your other Brazilian targets you mentioned in the, in the Garupi Gold Belt. Are these are still very early exploration, but they've had a lot of, I think, as you pointed out, a lot of native um, activity there, right? Correct. Now, Jay, I mean, it's, uh, for example, our Montesiros license, which is a, a property south of our Cachoeira project, also in the Gurupi Gold Belt. Mm-hmm. Um, really almost, uh, I mean, it, it has a very documented history. This This property has been mined for gold uh, with uh, the gold veins of surface for 150 years. Wow. In fact, um, the first company that came from England uh, to mine uh, gold in Brazil mined this property. And some of the gold that was mined from this property was used to finance Brazil's war against Paraguay. I mean, hmm. there's about three books that have been written on this property. It's, uh, the, you know, the history is really more than just uh, a number of artisanal miners being active mm-hmm. on it. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been actively mined uh, for a very long time, so it's a, it's a prospect that we're um, we're very excited about. But it would be a disservice to the project to just call it a prospect with such a with such uh-huh. a long history. But these well, are the kind of things that we're looking at. But also, Jay, this is not an environment for us to let's say spend aggressively to drill these projects because sure. it's also a heck of an environment to maybe acquire properties mm-hmm. that are out there that are in a distressed situation because. The the interesting thing about the market we're in right now is even though you and I are extremely bullish on uh, gold prices in the long run because of all the dynamics that drive that, the gold juniors are having a heck of a time out there raising money. So right. PRI being in a stronger position with more cash and more of a supportive shareholder base than most juniors out there, we have an opportunity to acquire proven ounces in the ground for uh, record low prices right now. Oh, record, at least oh. you know, in the five in the last five six years, ounces in the ground right now are trading at you know five six year lows. Oh, that's that's absolutely it's absolutely right. Those that have the money and the and the resources, this is the best of times, even though the share prices are down. So, we only have a little less than a minute left. I know you've got also a, a property in Paraguay. Maybe just spend thirty seconds to tell our listeners why you're there. You know, we're there because. A lot of the geology is, um, that we're targeting in Paraguay is, uh, is near the border with uh, Brazil, where in the Mato Grosso, Cuiaba uh, belt of Brazil, this mineral belt and these rocks extend right into Paraguay, except they're uh, a lot more expensive grounds to buy on the Brazil side of the border. And we were able to do um, a very attractive deal with the Paraguayan government and get ourselves close to uh, you know, just over 100,000 hectares in Paraguay, but it's the same. It's the same rocks, Jay. I mean, the rocks don't care where the borders uh, no. start and end with countries. And so, I think here you have a situation where we've leveraged our technical understanding of uh, Brazilian geology. We've applied it entrepreneurially into Paraguay by trying to get ourselves a much larger land package at a much lower cost. Uh, on the Paraguay side of the border. Uh, we've mobilized um, uh, a team and some consultants down there that are helping us uh, set up and operate. And Paraguay is really a virgin frontier in South America. It's, uh, it's an area that you don't hear much about, but it's a country that has passed a new mining law. 
And I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, exploration and mining in Paraguay in the next five to ten years. So I think well, I've, uh, our, companies, our company is definitely kind of a, a leader in, in getting in their first year. Uh, mm-hmm. But this really represents uh, exploration upside to our investors and shareholders. No doubt about it. It's very exciting. I wish we had more time. We are out of time, uh, Amir. We'll talk to you again sometime soon, I hope, and uh, good luck. I, I really, I, well, Thanks I think for having me. It's, it's, an, it's the most exciting time. Thank you very much for telling your story. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with Ed Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. Don't go away. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico. Backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet, an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. This is the very first Turning Hard Times into Good Times show, and it is no accident that we have Ed G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of a book that I think all Americans should read. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Ed's with me today. Ed, welcome. Uh, thank you, Jay. Good to be here. Uh, I believe The Creature from Jekyll Island does, in fact, uh, address the very most important issue that we're trying to address in this radio show, and that is what is the cause of our current economic malaise? Why did we get ourselves into so much trouble? Uh, and, Ed, that, quite frankly, is the reason that I, I'm delighted to have you on as, as our first guest in this show. Um, for those who are not familiar with Ed's work, I want to just start out right away by suggesting that they go to his website, which is uh, realityzone.com. Is that right, Ed? That's right. Um, we have so much ground to cover, Ed, and we have so little time to do it here in uh, less than a half an hour. I think that we can give maybe our listeners an introduction to what the creature from Jekyll Island is all about, but I, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to get into the kind of depth I would like to get into, but maybe sometime in the future uh, we can do that, I hope, or at least if I can just get people to read this book. You know, I tell people at all the speaking engagements that I'm, that I'm involved with, I always tell people they should really read this book because it really outlines, as I said, the heart of the problem, I think, that we have in our financial markets right now. 
Ed, uh, let me just start out by mentioning that the uh, the first chapter of your book is entitled The Journey to Jekyll Island. Uh, the book starts out by talking about this clandestine gathering of a group of men who boarded a luxury train, I believe in Hoboken, New Jersey, to go to this place called Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, and they were pretending to go uh, duck hunting, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell our listeners who these men were and why were they pretending to go duck hunting, and what was the real purpose of their meeting? Yeah, you're quite right. It's hard to cover so much ground in so little time. Um, the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, but uh, it's much bigger than that. It's it's about uh, the nature of money. It's about economic laws. It's about uh, the abuse of uh, the power to create a nation's money and, and how that abuse leads to corruption in government and so many things that are now descending around our heads. And uh, But it ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, which is the mechanism uh, by which the United States creates money on behalf of the uh, government. And uh, the meeting to which you were referring back in 1910 at Jekyll Island was the uh, seminal meeting where a small group of uh, the wealthiest people in the world are representing their firms, seven of them, went to Jekyll Island because it was uh, out of the beaten path, it was very private, and in fact they even denied for quite some time that they went to such a meeting. It was a secret meeting, and it was at that meeting that they hammered together all the important details of what was to become the Federal Reserve System three years later when it was passed into law in 1913. Now, the the reason they did this in secret and, uh, and uh, denied that they were participating is a very simple reason. The Federal Reserve was offered to the American people as an agency of the federal government. Supposedly they thought it was an agency of the federal government, and it wasn't. But it was offered to them as uh, an agency which was supposed to uh, put the reins on the very powerful banking uh, dynasties in Wall Street. Uh, the people of America were very concerned by this uh, huge power, economic power that had coalesced into the hands of a, sm of a few uh, uh, Wall Street uh, investment firms. They knew that the, the credit of the entire nation was wrapped up in a few banks and insurance companies. They were concerned about that, and they thought that the Federal Reserve System was going to put controls on those very wealthy, powerful institutions and, um, you know, and make sure that they serve the purposes of the nation rather than the private purposes of the, uh, of the corporations. And so the reason for the secrecy is that the very corporations and institutions which supposedly were to be controlled by this legislation were the ones that were drafting the legislation. They decided that, well, okay, the, the people want uh, uh, some laws now to control our industry, so we're not going to wait for enemies of our industry to write those laws. We will do it ourselves. And we'll hide that fact. We'll let the people think that it was done by their noble politicians when, in fact, we are the ones that are drafting it. And that's the reason for the secrecy. It's a very simple and an obvious uh, logical arrangement when you think about it. And the people that went there, the seven of them were Nelson Aldridge, who was uh, the Republican whip in the Senate, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the country, uh, Abraham Piat Andrew, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury at that time, but he was he came from a banking family, and that's the reason he was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, because basically he had banking connections. Frank Vanderlip was there. He was President of the National City Bank of New York. 
Henry P. Davison was a senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles D. Norton was president of J.P. Morgan's First National Bank of New York. Benjamin Strong was there. He was head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And finally, Paul Warburg was there, who was a full partner in Kuhn Loban Company, which was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. And, of course, his brother, Max Warburg, was the head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Those are the guys that drafted the Federal Reserve Act. And when you look at the wealth which they held individually and which their banks and institutions held, according to estimates at the time, which we pulled out of the New York Times, was that they represented about one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. Now, that was, in other words, the very banking cartel, the industry, uh, the uh, money trust, as they called it in the newspapers those days. Mm-hmm. That was the very money trust that supposedly the uh, Federal Reserve System was supposed to control, mm-hmm. and they drafted the legislation. Well, now we jump ahead to today. What's the fruit of that? The reason these guys created the Federal Reserve System is so that they could use the uh, governmental power that that backed it to make sure that they would uh, enjoy a nice, handsome profit no matter whether their businesses failed or succeeded. They knew that if their their businesses were probably going to fail because they were uh, they were uh, undergoing very unsound banking practices, they were lending money they didn't have. Uh, they didn't really concern themselves too much with the ability of the person to pay or the institution or country to pay back the loans, because they knew that in in the event of a crisis, they could always go to the taxpayer and get the taxpayers to put up the money to cover the losses. That was all started back in 1910. And, you know, for years, people tried to tell the American people that this is what's going on and you better look out because, uh, you know, you're going to wind up picking up this huge bill. And nobody was interested. They said, ah, I don't believe that. Um, and uh, Anyway, we're living well, aren't we? Look at the prosperity. Mm-hmm. Well, now, here we are now in 2009, and it's finally coming down the way some of us have been predicting all these years. And now people are saying, well, what happened? Well, how did this happen? How did we let this happen? Yeah. Well, they let it happen is because they didn't care. Yeah. It didn't take an interest. Now it's uh, it's very, very, very late. But, Ed, the reasons given to us, uh, you know, constantly by the media has always been, you know, it's for our own good. They're going to... Uh, they're they're going to uh, manage the economy. They're going to they're going to be able to avoid uh, significant downturns in in the economy by uh, by having more liquidity, by having the, the Federal Reserve being able to uh, to create lots of money. Um, but you know that obviously isn't uh, isn't working out too well, is it? Well, no. That's always been the argument from the very beginning, back in 1913 when they passed the the bill. It was all to help. America it was all to help you folks, the the average person. We are doing this. The bankers are saying we bankers are doing this, and we politicians are doing this for you folks. Not all. We don't benefit, do we? Of course not. Uh, it's it's a bunch of nonsense. It's uh, it's propaganda, and it's just amazing to me that uh, the average uh, voter is uh, is so uh, politically illiterate that they fall for that stuff over and over and over again. They actually believe that the government is there to help them. You know, that's well, they, they Ed, actually believe that. Well, Ed, you could say that in a way then that the uh, that the stated reasons for the Federal Reserve's creation has been a failure, perhaps, but but. Have, has the Fed, looking at it from their own through their own eyes, if you could do so, 
Have, has the Fed's real reasons for being created been a failure, do you think? Oh, it's been a, a rip-roaring success. Uh-huh. The Federal Reserve has succeeded on every one of the principles which they set out to, to, uh, to do back on Jekyll Island when they discussed the purpose of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it was to control the competition. They were, they were concerned over the arrival of new banks springing mm-hmm. up in the south and on the west coast of the expanding nation in those days and they wanted to keep control in new york with the existing biggest banks they they wanted to be able to pass on their losses to the taxpayer they wanted to be able to create money out of nothing so as to manipulate interest rates which would drive people to the banks to borrow money at at uh, low interest rates rather than for people to save money and do whatever they wanted to do, expand business or take vacations or whatever they wanted to do with money. Instead of saving the money, they wanted to bring the people into the banks to borrow money because the banks make money only when others come in and borrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, The banks really don't want you to pay back your loans. They want you to just keep those loans open forever like a credit card statement and just send in your interest every month. Well, Ed, as I understand, you know, as the United States was a young country in the early 1900s, it was growing very rapidly, the late 1800s, it was growing very rapidly, and there were a lot of very successful companies that were not really needing banks. They were actually growing from internally generated funds. That is, they took their profits and reinvested them so that the institutions, the, the industrial companies themselves, were actually in a sense banking interest, and they were crowding out the, the big New York, the money center banks. It was that then part of their reason was to avoid that competition? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. They they did not want uh, private capital formation. That was almost like a dirty phrase. They spoke, how can, we, how can we circumvent private capital formation as though it was an evil thing? They wanted people coming to the banks to borrow money rather than save it. Well, we've heard this phrase recently in the mainstream media, um, privatizing profits socializing uh, losses, and I guess that's that's what they've been doing. But, Ed, when we're talking about now, we're talking about not billions of dollars. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars and even trillions of dollars of socialized losses that the common folks are being asked to shoulder. Is that is that what's going on here? And did yeah, it, that, it, that it all have its origin on, back in 1910 then? That's right. It's It's been going on for a long time, but it's certainly accelerating right now to the point where I, I think the cup is going to be full. I mean, there's, there comes a point when you do have total socialized uh, government, socialized industry, socialized uh, everything, banking, health care, and so forth, uh, you start off with 10% and then 15, 20, 30, 80, and so forth. At some point, you get to 100%. Mm. And uh, we're, I think we're very close to that, and, and these guys in Washington are, are laying out the, the roadmap to get us to that point in a very short period of time now. And when we get to 100%, I think people need to realize that not only are uh, is the economy totally regimented by government, but people themselves are totally regimented by government. It's- and Ed, I think that it's true that uh, socialism doesn't really create wealth. It, it is a consumer of wealth. The capitalism really creates wealth. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a little bit, but one of the things I want to ask you about is gold. And what what role did gold play? Gold has been the enemy of of, uh, of, of sort of the fractional reserve banking system that the uh, that the Federal Reserve has espoused. So. You know, when we come back, um, uh, maybe you could address that issue a little bit or, or maybe get started on it right now for the next few seconds. Well, yeah, uh, just to get started on it, uh, gold has always been the enemy of uh, politicians and uh, bankers who want the ability to expand, you know, create money supply out of nothing so mm-hmm. they can 
can collect interest on huge amounts of nothing, literally. Mm-hmm. Gold has always been a discipline which they hate. And so there's a great propaganda war to convince the American people that gold is not a good thing. You should not have a monetary system backed by gold. And they're not quite sure why, but they've heard it so many times that uh-huh. uh, they just repeat it. So I guess it would not be a gigantic uh, surprise to you then that uh, when the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, headed by Bill Murphy and uh, a couple of those uh, folks, the hard money camp, uh, really started to talk about this issue. Um, was that a surprise to you when you heard them talk about conspiracy on the part of the government and banks to to control the price of gold or at least to keep it from rising so rapidly? No, it wasn't a surprise to me. I was just mad that it took them so long to get there <laughs> because that thing has been going on. The manipulation of the uh, gold supply and the price of gold has been going on for a long, long uh-huh. time. But I'm sure glad that uh, that committee came into being because they had the expertise expertise uh, and the knowledge of being able to figure it out and explain it. Okay, we're going to have to take a break here. Uh, We'll be right back with Ed Griffin. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. This is Jay Taylor, your host uh, for uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm with Ed Griffin. And, Ed, before the break, we were talking a little bit about gold. We just introduced the topic. Gold is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. It's been very kind to me. We've uh, invested in gold and gold mining shares over the last number of years, and it's uh, it's done very well. While the equity markets have fallen out of bed, gold mining has been a very uh, – gold mining and gold itself have, have been very, very good for our portfolios. But I would like to get back to – just asking you why it is that gold is such a problem for uh, for the Federal Reserve and for those uh, for for the establishment, frankly, right now. Yes, well, there's a group of economists out there that uh, worship at the feet of uh, John Maynard Keynes, who is a well-known collectivist uh, writer and, and economic theorist uh, some decades ago, uh, and Keynes called gold the barbaric metal. And um, Karl Marx picked up on that theme, too. He, he thought that gold was a barbaric metal. And all of the collectivists uh, agree with that because they see that the ability to expand the money supply at, at will, 
the ability to just create whatever amounts of money may be required for whatever your scheme is gives tremendous power to those who hold the ability to create the money. That's pretty obvious. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Uh, but when a money supply is based on something which limits its growth, and certainly gold would be in that category, then these guys don't have the power to just manufacture money out of nothing. Like right now, Congress and the Federal Reserve would not be able to create these hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. They just would not be able to do it. Well, let me understand that. They don't have the ability with a gold standard to redistribute wealth from the people that create it, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, those people that actually create wealth to themselves. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, that's right. Uh, when when money is backed by gold or silver or anything else of tangible value, uh, then its supply, the supply of money, always keeps pace with the growth of the goods and services within society. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good reason for that. We probably don't have time to go into all the mechanics of it, but it has always always been that way. Um, and so that the the value of the one ounce of gold or silver. Uh, always has remained constantly has been re remained constant throughout those periods mm -hmm. of history where money was backed by gold or silver. Uh, just to give you a, a brief uh, example, if we had lived in ancient Rome uh, in times of Caesar and we had a one ounce gold coin, we would have been able to spend it and buy a very nice uh, toga, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. That would have cost approximately one ounce of gold. Today, thousands of years later, if we have one ounce of gold, we can uh, exchange it for Federal Reserve notes, run down to the to the clothing store before the value depreciates, yeah. and we can buy a nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. So the value, the true purchasing value of one ounce of gold really hasn't changed in thousands of years mm -hmm. because the amount of energy to produce that suit, that belt, and that pair of shoes is approximately the same amount of energy required to dig out one ounce of gold from the ground and, and purify it and put it into a coin. I can tell you, Ed, it's a very difficult task. I've been down in mines a mile under the earth, and huh? the amount of, of engineering and capital and so forth and expertise that's required to yeah. get gold from the ground is a heck of a lot harder, I think, than it is for these central bankers to create money out of thin air. Well, of course, yeah. And so the, the, the politicians and the bankers who want that power to be able to create money out of nothing to accomplish their political objectives or to collect interest on the money, which they go through the motions of loaning out, that's a tremendously heady uh, power that they have. They hate the idea of having a monetary system limited by the quantity of gold or silver which people can dig out of the earth. So that's the war, and unfortunately, the uh, uh, the average American is not aware of that. Mm -hmm. he, he just thinks that, oh, isn't it nice that these the nice people, these uh, elected representatives in Washington, are are giving all this money away? Oh, and then they're going to help us, mm -hmm. and they don't realize that they're giving money away that they're taking from the people in the first place, and they don't understand how they're taking it. Well, they're taking it first of all through taxes. But that's the smaller part of the picture now with these huge amounts that they're creating. There's no way they're going to tax the American people enough to pay for all of that. So, But they're going to get it anyway, and they're going to get it through higher prices, through inflation. 
it won't be too much further down the line, and the average guy will be saying, how come I'm paying $35 for a loaf of bread? Right. And they're going to wonder what hit them. Ed, you know, it, it has to be that way, you, you think, because there's trillions of dollars that the Obama administration is now promising to pump into the economy to bail people out or, to, or for one sort of works program or another, and the Chinese don't have that kind of money. Where, where is the global savings going to come from to finance that? I guess that's the issue, isn't it? Yes, there would be no global savings. They're going to get this from the sweat of the average worker. That's where it's all coming from and always has come from when these collectivists get hold of the political machinery and start spending more than they have. Then it starts to ricochet down, and eventually it hits to the average guy, the worker who's out there working for a living, and, and, and he pays it either through taxes, direct taxes, or indirect taxes called inflation. That's the only place it ever comes from. Ed, uh, I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes. We've got about four minutes left. I'd like to spend a couple of minutes to talk about housing. I know that you talked in your book about housing debacles in the past, about how the government has intervened in the housing market, and now we've had the biggest housing bubble that we've ever had, uh, and it's pulling down the whole economy, obviously, as, as you know, millions of homes cannot be financed. People don't have the wherewithal to, to fan, finance them. Would you care to just comment a little bit on the current housing situation and does this thing have a lot further to go before we see the bottom of it? Well, that second question is, is one that I wouldn't touch uh, with a 20-foot pole because uh, I don't know how much further it has to go. Uh -huh. But I can say in general that the housing market was greatly uh, inflated or bubbled, as they say. And what that means is that uh, the number of dollars that were being spent for a piece of real estate were way out of proportion of its uh, underlying value when measured against other things. Mm -hmm. And the reason that came about is because of manipulation of the credit markets, the ability of the Federal Reserve and some of the other agencies which were politically supported to redistribute uh, credit unnaturally into certain favored areas. And the home market was one of the favored areas. They made mortgage rates ridiculously low. And that lured people... Uh, it's like luring a fish to grab a, a worm, not realizing that there was a hook underneath the worm. <laughs> it lured people to snap at those great interest rates, and they said, well, I can afford that monthly payment, and they moved upgraded in their housing, and first thing you know, they're living in semi-palaces, and they think, this is wonderful, not realizing <laughs> that they had already been hooked for the contraction which was destined to come because everything eventually seeks its own level. And uh, so what we're seeing now is a, a return to realistic values. Um, and all the bubble is being squeezed out of it or all the water is being squeezed out of the sponge or however, whatever mm -hmm. analogy you want to use. What the point will be when it finally is at the realistic level, I don't know. But I suspect it has a little more to go before it really is uh, realistically compared to other things that people can buy with that same dollar. There's going to be a, quite a bit of pain, then, you suspect, for the, for the economy, for, for most people in general. Well, I think so. I, I believe so. Uh, and I almost hope so, not because I want the pain, but because if we don't have the pain, there will be no change. Uh, if we don't have the pain, the, the present policies will continue, and I know what lies at the end of that road. The end of that road will be a completely totalitarian system mm -hmm. where you and I will not only have anything, uh, any money, 
to buy things with, but we'll also have no freedom to do anything with anything we bought in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's and where it's headed, and that worries me even more than the economic crisis. That's the worst thing, as Ron Paul has, has said. If we have our freedom, we can recover. But if we lose our freedom, it's very, very difficult to recover economically. Exactly. Ed, have you got some ideas about what people should be doing, either for themselves or to try to help uh, steer the country back in the right direction? Well, the reason I formed Freedom Force International is because I wanted to deal with that very question. I don't think anything is going to change, uh, Jay, until we change the uh, thinking mm-hmm. of the people who go to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Right now, most of those guys are on the gravy train, and they're thinking about collectivism. They're thinking about power. They're thinking about you know feathering their own nests. We need some real Americans in there that think about the nation first who understand the basics of economics and uh, money and uh, who have an ideology that is not uh, uh, the same as communism or socialism or Nazism. Yeah. I mean, what we have been following in our own government of late is so close to those ideologies that we have dreaded and fought against in the mm-hmm. past, and we're adopting the very principles here at home. We need people in Washington that are going to take a return to the principles of liberty and freedom and individual worth that we used to have in this country. If we can do that, then we can dig out of any kind of a mess that comes along. But if we continue down the path that we're going, then I don't think we're going to dig out. And that's the reason we created Freedom Force International, is for people who want to help in that reversal process to come on board and uh, work together with us. Excellent, Ed. We're, we're running out of time here, so I would like to tell people that they should go to realityzone.com. Is that where they can learn more well, about realityzone.com is the commercial site where you can mm-hmm. uh, buy all of these books and videos mm-hmm. and things. But the place for Freedom Force is called freedomforceinternational.org. Excellent, Ed. I'm, I'm so glad you could be with us for our very first show. Folks, please don't go away. I'm, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'll be back. 